Well, good afternoon and welcome to today's FS Club webinar, which is on how does government use corporate finance techniques to support taxpayers? Um, you couldn't imagine a more exciting topic if you tried. And this is all part of our government uh, propaganda machine. Oh, no, excuse me. <laughs> it's all part of getting the message out there about some of the really important things that are genuinely going on in government to try and help us as taxpayers uh, get control of corporate finance uh, in the public sector. And we have with us here today, Matthew Reese. Matthew's the Director of Commercial Hub and Insights at the National Audit Office. I've known Matthew for many years and see him as one of the most responsible public servants I know, really, really trying to make sure that there's good value for money across the, the public sector. And we'll be covering that today, but most importantly, Matthew and his team have brought out a booklet, a guide to corporate finance in the public sector. And it's a really seriously good review of what's been happening as we've begun to see a variety of techniques being used across the public sector. And Matthew and the team are trying to provide best guidance uh, to practitioners, both inside and outside. We'll come on to that as we go ahead. Anyway, you know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it is a genuine privilege to be able to introduce all of these various webinars that we do. And we can only do so thanks to the tolerance and generosity of our sponsors. Now, our sponsors might say, well, this seems a wee bit like a UK government, uh, government pamphlet and propaganda machine. It is definitely not. Matthew has truly looked widely and deeply and tried to distill with his with his with his group some general principles that apply everywhere so i see this as a fairly universal applicability at the interface between economics finance and the public sector maybe not all that much about technology but we'll see um, now the format for those of you who've been here before is fairly well known i'm going to get out of your way as quickly as possible matthew will be speaking for about 20 minutes matthew has three poll questions so fingers ready on buzzers there if you don't mind uh, and then three quick points for me now. Uh, yes, it's being recorded. Uh, yes, the slides are available. In fact, I think they're already up in the chat room there. The recording will be up in about uh, two working days. It's just sometime over the weekend. Uh, so you can you know, settle the family down on Saturday night and have a good old review. Um, but most importantly, how do you participate? So in the Q&A, please use the GoToWebinar facility here. And if you've got points of detail, which are highly likely, in a presentation like this. Uh, Matthew will receive all of the comments, questions, and observations, any links you want to send him with your email attached and, and get back in touch with you. So if it's something you just want to talk directly to him, just let us know through the chat room and we'll make sure that Matthew gets it. Well, Matthew, I think that's about all the housekeeping. We're really, really interested in this approach to the public sector finance. The floor is very much yours. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks for the introduction. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Yes, yeah, so if we go on to the next slide, please. Um, I think the, the topic here is really, as Michael said, is, is intended to be uh, global in its kind of outlook. So, so we're not just focused on the UK. But if we go on to the next slide, I'll just give a little bit about what we are and who we are in the UK. So our, our role is to all the UK government. Um, you've got you know 400 uh, odd um, departmental accounts that we audit, and then we produce between sort of 60, around 60 evaluative studies uh, each year. The kind of product that I'm going to take you through though is what we call insights. What the advantage of this is that we can take stock of all the work we've done and really promote better outcomes in future. 
clearly we can only look at a fraction of what government does right across its uh, its field of fast field of activities. So, so as I take you through the guide, it'll be very much informed by our work, but very much intended for future kind of practitioners to to get better outcomes in future. And then just on the right there, before I go into the detail of the guide, um, this this accountability cycle involves. The, um, the Public Accounts Committee and, and departments such as Treasury and BASE, in, in most particular for what I'm just going to talk about today, but obviously you know, any department is subject to that parliamentary oversight. All of our reports are published in Parliament and then it's then that, that public uh, scrutiny that happens through the PAC, which is where a lot of our work gets amplified or, or expanded into recommendations for government. Um, so if I go, go across to the next slide, and it's intended to be a little bit messy actually, because what it highlights is that over a really long period, through the 80s into the financial crisis, back through a period of relative stability, and then through COVID, and now into the energy crisis, there's really a lot of issues which involve government supporting, investing, sometimes rescuing, sometimes creating, sometimes selling corporate or financial institutions. Uh, there's lots of logos there that some of us will have uh, greater or lesser uh, knowledge or affinity with, some of which have disappeared altogether. Um, so, um, so that's the context for this. And I think it's very much the starting point is that we wanted to consolidate a lot of the work where we've looked at these, these, these examples and try to put a framework around it. So if I, if I go on to the next slide, just really just got the front cover of, of the guide. As, as Michael said, it's available publicly. We'll put the link into the, the messaging. Uh, you can download it after. And really what it's trying to do is take, take a methodical view of corporate finance and how it relates to government activities. So we've got those three sections of the highlight and I'll, I'll take you through them in a minute principles and concepts, which are the fundamentals that apply. Then you get into organizations and functions, which is more about how government organizes itself. And then the third one is about the transactions. And through all of that, we, we get really into detail. So the presentation gets into more and more detail, but I'm obviously gonna keep it at fairly high level given the time today. Um, so if we go on to the next slide, I'll just expand to explain what these these three things look like. And as you see, there are actually 14 uh, individual sections of our guide. It, it's an interactive PDF. So if you download it, you can click and, and navigate quite comfortably through these areas. So principles and concepts first. This is really at the fundamentals. So analysis, valuation, investment, appraisals will be familiar to participants right across the, the commercial and financial sector. The, the area that I'll expand on a little bit as we go through the presentation is perhaps a little bit less familiar, which is government balance sheet and accounting. But then we come back to obviously common themes around capability, advisors, and then the governance and stewardship side. So we set out in all of this, what we mean, what questions we would ask, and it's all informed by the work that we've done. Um, and uh, it also links across to relevant government guidance, of which there's certainly no shortage in the UK. Not always easy to find, but hopefully this is a, a kind of bit of a one-stop shop to get hold of it as well. Um, the other two areas, sort of drilling down, the organisations and functions, we've done lots of work across corporate, venture, co corporate uh, entities, companies, and then joint ventures. 
and we've also looked at government financial institutions. Uh, we've landscaped this and we've looked at things like the uh, UK Infrastructure Bank recently. My colleague Simon looked at that. Um, and then we get into commercial functions and regulators, and, and you'll see perhaps our work around the energy market where Ofgem's capability to understand the health and resilience of the energy suppliers has been you know, pretty actively tested and, and it will be continued to be under scrutiny. So these organisations need to have the capability, those principles and concepts apply to all of them. And then obviously the transactions, you know, but we, we've looked across the board and perhaps these are the things that come first to, first to mind and I'll give a few examples of those shortly. Sales, investments, you know, two to, to quite kind of active areas of activity. There's also lending and, and particularly the use of guarantees and then private finance, which, you know, could merit a whole guide of its own, actually, and, you know, everything from PFI through to PPP. So we really feel there's a lot in here. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to obviously go through all of that section, but I'm just going to take us a little bit further. So if we can just go on to the next slide, please. Um, we're just going to come up with a quick poll. Um, I've thrown this in really because um, that discounting approach is kind of important to the way that um, government does its own appraisals. So we'll just pause and see if we get, get some consensus on that one. Great. Well, we've got that moving. Um, it's the usual thing here, Matthew. Our audience is pretty quick off the mark, so it uh, shouldn't be too hard here. Uh, we're up to half the audience voted. We'll just leave it open another four or five seconds. Okay. Uh, uh, handing over. Here we go. So the result. What do we have for? Uh, well, it's pre pretty mixed, actually, isn't it? I can't believe it. Well, I did. No, and, and no, I got this year. They're not just. They're not six people, I'm sorry, eight, ten people online, there are quite a few more. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. Well, I mean, the actually, the, the answer's the middle one. And it sounds like, you know, a pretty kind of irrelevant question, but actually right at the heart of government's investment appraisal is is this social time preference. Um, curious thing really is it, it's really not been reviewed since 2003. Matthew, we seem to have lost sound on you for a second. And certainly from our perspective, risk and inflation are two major factors that would perhaps need to be thought about. Um, Michael, you... you're, you're back on there. Uh, you just might want carry, to carry on. So, so yeah, just, just as a little... Okay, yeah, so so yeah, the answer is three and a half. And I think so the, the government's Green Book um, Investment Appraisal Guidance is where that comes from. Um, so just moving on through the rest of the presentation. So case studies, um, we've informed our work with this list of case studies and many other guidance documents are, are linked in the document. So if, if you look at it, you, you'll find that. That was just the purpose of that slide. So we, we could move on to a little bit more um, detail really about, so if we go to the next slide. So yeah, so um, this is an example of the material. Um, again, I'm not gonna read this out, but you'll find for each of those 14 sections, we've got a similar layout. Um, and obviously it's informed by the sort of questions we come up with when we come and look at these. And I mean, I, I've led the report on the Royal Mail uh, privatization on the Eurostar sale. Uh, colleagues have, have looked at things around the Green Investment Bank. So we, we've, we've done an active program of reviews on asset sales. 
Um, uh, and hopefully, if you, if you look at that, you'll find some, some value in, in that, even if you're just in, in general M&A. Um, so if we, if we kind of move on to the next slide, we'll, we'll just pull up one uh, slightly different aspect. And, and this, this acquisitions and investment area, we will run a poll in a second, is perhaps less represented in, in our past work than, than I feel we need to be thinking. We think about what's happening in, in current circumstances, particularly around uh, companies that government may need to support uh, and will have seen the, the work that we did around um, the, the energy suppliers that government support for businesses involves some form of investment or acquisition or potentially financing. But, but we have looked at um, quite an active activity that local authorities um, have been involved in in the commercial property market. Um, and we've also looked at venture capital investments, sort of pooled investments from government. So, so there's a little bit of NAO work in there, but perhaps I'm flagging that we might need to do some more there. So if, uh, if we see more, more government activity, we'll be following up. Um, perhaps we, we can move on to the, to the other poll, actually, because it's perhaps uh, just asks people what, what proportion of, of all the commercial property acquisitions in the southeast of England were actually made by local authorities over that three-year period. Okay, folks, we're on to this one as well. Um, and the funny bit about this one was uh, I, I was surprised at the answer myself, so I'll leave it to the audience. Probably drives you more to the first one or the third one, but uh, here we go. Over yeah. half the audience, over 60% have voted. We're almost finished with the voting there, and I think we'll, uh, we'll hand it over now. Uh, and... The results here are interesting. So two thirds of the audience got the right answer, and uh, it is a surprising number, isn't it? Yeah, no, exactly. Now, whether that continues at that level, um, it's probably not. It probably won't. I mean, there are some very specific features about this, which is as much driven by cuts in central government grants as fairly benign um, borrowing rates that, that central government was offering. So a number of local authorities were quite active to generate income, commercial income. That, that obviously that poses some quite significant risks as, as we look at the property market today. Um, so, so it's, it's obviously something to keep our eye on. Um, so we, we're back onto the slide pack. So, so the point I mentioned earlier was about government balance sheet implications. And um, without becoming kind of you know a technical thing here, it's really interesting to see that there is not one single standard method of measuring government indebtedness. So what we showed there is a bit of a fan diagram that shows from the left the most basic measure, liquid financial assets, government borrowing. And then across to, on the right-hand side, the whole of government accounts, WGA, which is an IFRS accruals-based accounting method, which brings onto the balance sheet liabilities and assets that, that are perhaps not otherwise visible to the economics-driven method that the PSND uses. So the, I'm, I'm flagging something here. Obviously, for follow-up questions or, or things, it's probably better to take this offline. But one of the things that we've felt is that, that, that the, the narrower measure often generates policy reactions which take advantage of things, particularly on the liability side, being kind of invisible to, um, to, to the taxpayer, which doesn't fill feel, feel us with huge confidence, uh, and particularly the guarantees area, which um, even under the WGA net liability side, you won't see contingent liabilities there, but they are the 
you know, the, the probable or possible cause of, of further um, exposure on, on that on the liability side. Um, so if we if we just move on to the next slide, I'll just show you a little bit about some of the work we've been doing. Um, so back back about five years ago, we started focusing on the use of financial guarantees. Uh, there's a bit of a timeline there as Treasury responded, and we've seen iterations of whole government accounts. And then actually within central government now, there's a central capability really focusing on risk management and the uncertainty so that they can actually model some of these exposures better. So it, this is really just to illustrate the kind of work that we do with our reports is to drive a better focus on, on this risk management. Um, contingent liabilities is, is, you know, is a very significant um, potential cash outflow. And, and obviously, in some circumstances, these liabilities retire and disappear without causing any cash outflow. So they could be very useful when you use guarantees to avoid cash outflow. But obviously, that risk and potential outflow is, is, is hard to value and hard to predict. So that, that's part, part of our sort of influencing uh, agenda. Um, I'm just going to skim just briefly through one more example, um, Peter, so we can just go quickly on to the next slide. Oh, we've got, oh, sorry, we've got our poll, final poll, right. <laughs> almost, almost missed this almost one. Almost forgot, um, yeah, here we go. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so the question here really is, is um, when, when, we, when we look at the, the Treasury's guidance on, on um, insurer of last resort, what's on, what's on the list? You can pick more than one answer. Okay, well, off we go again, and we've got to, uh, again, last last time, folks, I know the fingers are tired here. <laughs> got to, half the audience have voted again, and this time it's looking extremely good. All right, we'll close that poll. Um, and what you'll see here is exactly what you'd expect. Most people did multiple results. So what was the answer? All of them. Exactly. So yeah, we've got at least, I'm sure at least one person picked all. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's just, uh, there's a there's a really a, a large exposure risk. Um, yeah, so just briefly on on student loans. I mean, this was a complex piece of analysis. My colleague Simon Reason led this piece of work. The reason just to include it is that it's a novel asset class. It's it's a um, it's you know it's future tax receipts that governments monetized, um, and so it's a very it's a very curious policy decision to actually sell what is going to be received through taxes. The investor doesn't actually take the risk that's relating to people's income, which drives the repayment. Uh, all of these loans are recovered through through um, the tax code. Um, but government did have a policy to to sell them. Um, there's just a few paragraph clippings there, really, from the report. So if, if you're looking at a, a really analytical report that we've produced on on that kind of transaction side definitely one I'd recommend um, and if we're just going to go on to the, the following slide it just gives a, a quick kind of overview of some of the sort of analysis that we did um, and you can see there the um, the face value versus the selling price and, and what we tried to explain there was the different valuation techniques that were being applied the, the risk adjustments and how that that obviously in some sense justified uh, a purchase, a sales price for, for government, so a purchasing price for the investor, a significant discount to face value. Um, 
and uh, you know I think through through that example we we show how you know this uncertainty and the novel nature of this caused investors quite a lot of challenge to really get their heads around what these things are worth but ultimately government was crystallizing you know for, for cash an asset which wasn't showing on on its um, on its balance sheet um, just because of the the way that things are accounted for right final slide and we're just uh, just getting out of time so just to wrap up um really just wanted to just explain to government governments involved in a wide range of corporate finance activity uh, it is various different reasons why these can be very complex uh, accounting issues as I mentioned very important and um, you know we're, we're there to audit this but we also want to work constructively with officials um, and that guide that you've seen there and do you know do have a dip into it is really intended to help uh, not just government, but also advisors to government and, and those who come into government to really ask the right questions and get better outcomes. So I shall pause and I'm very happy to answer questions or start a discussion. Okay. Well, uh, I'm waiting for a few more questions to come in, but uh, we can definitely start a discussion because I find this topic endlessly interesting. Uh, and folks, I would point to you uh, in the um, in the chat room, you can find immediately the uh, guide itself. If you, this is a bit of a technical issue, so you might want to peruse the guide while you're composing your questions or comments. Uh, the first one, Matthew, is uh, where does where does PFI and PPP fit in this? These were the great saviors, uh, you know, starting in the early 90s, and now we then they became a great uh, London export, and now we don't seem to hear about them very much, except in vague terms. Yeah, well, exactly. So we have a one of those little buckets in the 14 categories is private finance, and and we we've kept it at that sort of you know 14 themes, and rather than going off into that particular area. But there's a lot of NEO work, and the most recent piece of work was really looking at how uh, local authorities plan for the expiry of PFI, um, uh, and that was a Treasury decision. You know, largely driven by concerns about value for money and the ability of these long-term contracts to continue to deliver the right service levels for for um, public authorities. So mm -hmm. it, it is it is there, but we've not deliberately not majored on on obviously what was a major policy area for for quite a period. Mm -hmm. um, Hugh Purser is curious: How is the cost of Quango shown in the government accounts? Well, I mean, most Quangos just have a grant in aid from central department. So, so when you when you look at a departmental set of accounts, you'll see all the organisations that it, it's responsible for. So, departments sponsor arms length bodies and Quangos. Um, some of them are companies in their own right. Very few of them have anything in the form of a balance sheet. Uh, they're mostly showing the, um, you know, the, the salary expenditure netting off again and, and you know, property rental netting off against their grants. And then the program expenditure is typically coming through departmental accounts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Hugh's kind of curious, do you have a, just a, not trying to put you on the spot, um, a rough figure today? He believes he's seen a figure of something like 170 billion pounds. For, for what? Uh, for expenditure on quangos um yeah i don't i don't know off the top of my head i mean i think you know we, each department will have a bit, you know groups of public so there's a public bodies directory there's actually i think still if you search the government website you can get a full list of public bodies 
uh, but, uh, but I haven't sat down and tallied them up. I think perhaps that's something I could take as a, as a sort of offline, not to promise the number, but just to kind of point in the right direction to find this, the, the, the right sources. Super. Well, we got that email there. I'll get over to you. Um, uh, you pointed up in your wrap up that accounting issues are important. Um, and, and clearly they are. And in fact, in many ways, it was the off balance sheet potential of PFI that drove a lot of it uh, structurally. Um, but, but turning to kind of a, a different field, uh, has Britain's exit from the EU changed our ability to maybe handle more state aid structures or uh, has it in some way actually freed something up that we hadn't we, we hadn't been able to do previously? Um, I mean, there's obviously been new domestic legislation around um, subsidy control, um, which has uh, I haven't done a detailed comparison, but but it's obviously now subject to to that legislation. There are still kind of policy decisions to make about whether financial support is provided to a company or a sector or an industry. So I think the, the individual um, business case or rationale to do it needs to be clearly made. And I, I think government policy is fairly consistent that it doesn't unilaterally support individual companies, but, but it sometimes needs to. I mean, obviously these situations now with the energy market, um, companies like Bulb have had to be put into a special administration regime and you know, there's been announcements there about how, how government can exit that. Um, so financial support for energy companies or um, strategic industries, you know, the, the steel industry has been another one that's had, you know, reg, regular review by government. Um, I, I, think, I think the general principles are broadly consistent with the, the EU rules, but obviously there is domestic legislation that can allow for some flexibility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, the, the public sector relies uh, quite a bit on advice uh, from the private sector in, in these sorts of transactions. Is your guide also meant to help uh, private sector individuals? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a section on advisors and capability, and we divide that between, you know, what do you have in-house? Do you have the right in-house capability? And when would you use advisors? And what would you need to get out of those advisors? So it's it's intentionally positioned to, to get departments to ask those questions of itself. But actually, if you are an advisor to government under contract, then you'll bring a range of professional market experience and, and, and um, process experience that isn't necessarily sitting on a bench in government, uh, you know, ready to, to go off at any, any particular transaction. It builds capacity. Um, I mean, there is actually a lot of expertise in government through UK government investments and other major departments. So the corporate finance, I, as I've seen it over the years, the corporate finance expertise has developed quite, quite, quite positively, something that Obviously, I talk to the profession uh, regularly, and it's it's really encouraging to see that skills and, and expertise develop. But but I think in in major high profile transactions, it's inevitable that there'll be advisors in a particular field, whether you know that could be accounting and legal as well as corporate finance. Mm -hmm. And what's what's the reaction been uh, to the to the booklet? Positive, and um, I think people are pleased to see generally the NAO do more of these insights pieces. So obviously we we did the seminar back in February on procurement. That that's been a, a very helpful guide for me to do 
presentations to um, your commercial and project management teams across government. Similarly with this, we see a lot of um, synergy between you know, the procurement side and the corporate finance side um, for departments that are trying to to engage in commercial activities. So for, for us, it's, it's about putting together a message that, that avoids us having to be concerned about this, those transactions that we've missed missed out because we just can't review everything um, and hopefully um, seeing good outcomes in you know as many aspects of this as possible. Um, so it's certainly something when we talk with our um, key stakeholders in government, the accounting officers, the permanent secretaries, that they, they appreciate that there's now a, a stack of these good practice guides that are available for their, their officials and gets into risk management and digital themes as well as the stuff that I do. Okay. And uh, how, how much did you find as you were compiling this booklet that the, the terminology differed or did you find that you had to translate? I, I mean, I, I'm asking merely because I remember in the old days we used to have, uh, what was it, uh, we would we would say the government was doing cost accounting and not accruals accounting and then suddenly government yeah. came up with a completely new term for cost accounting <laughs> to pretend yeah. that it and then it came up with a new term for accruals accounting and you had accountants kind of trading these terms off all over the place until finally government just sort of quit. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's definitely challenges in that area. I mean, even the phrase corporate finance, when you talk to local government, they often think about corporate finance being their finance function, whereas, mm -hmm. whereas you know, the central government has used, has, has used the corporate finance label for a professional group that it's trying to develop. So we feel comfortable with that term. But actually just, you know, the, the, the relation between the public finances and corporate finances, sometimes, you know, we're divided by a common language sometimes on this. So we felt just articulating what we mean by each of these terms, hopefully at least clarifies them to, to the extent we can. Um, but, but yeah, but there's definitely room for further education in this, and especially when you get into those accounting issues, you know, they're, they're not necessarily um, obvious to, you know, professional advisor coming into government that the different measures of public sector debt is actually going to drive policy decisions. And sometimes not necessarily to the to to um, the most commercial and logical outcomes if they were looking at it from a commercial investment perspective. Actually, yeah, it just popped into my head. Resource accounting—that was the government phrase for accruals yeah. accounting, yeah. which drove everybody uh, nuts on that one. <laughs> well, there was also the uh, government accounting conventions, which go back to the the inflationary period of the 70s so unfortunately um, and not to make light of it we, we may be having to have another look at some of these themes yeah we will i think you, you mentioned there the um you know the, the long-term social discount rate has always come out uh, in economics actually at below three percent roughly around two and a half but one of the interesting things or, yeah. sorry one and a half and one of the interesting things about that is that it's actually equivalent to the natural death rate so when you sample people you, you, you actually get what they want, which is kind of, I want it as long as the payback is within my lifetime. Um, which yeah, is yeah. Um, now, now, you touched as well on, on some of the, uh, just briefly your last uh, answer, on some of the unforeseen elements uh, 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 that, that, that arise from many of these decisions. One of them is competition, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, the effect of these structures on competition. Um, I remember almost the exact opposite when, um, 
I was asked uh, in 2009, in February, what to do about RBS, which had collapsed in February 2008 um, by uh, an APVG. My answer was, well, we'll nationalize it because, you know, the government owned 84% of RBS. And so the other 16% was inconsequential uh, and they yeah. didn't want to take it back. Uh, and then I said, well, actually, if you do, you privatize it the next morning, but at 100 units, and you actually get competition in 25% of the banking sector, which to this day has very little competition. Now, the difficulty then was people were saying, oh, oh yeah, but you know, we want to sell it and make money on it. Um, mm -hmm. Where does something like that effect on competition feature in this type of corporate finance structure um, conversation? Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely relevant. I mean, obviously, the piece that we did on on the energy market showed the the effects of you know low barriers to entry and then market failure as a result of wholesale price. So so competition just you know erodes. Um, we're we're actually doing a piece of work at the moment on competition in public procurement. So when government's a buyer, does it have a choice itself? So. We're definitely thinking about the, the kind of market structure and the implications um, and asking departments to what extent they factor those into the decisions that they're making. Um, and I, I think um, they, without kind of looking at any, you know, taking any individual example, it's a really important question that we should be asking um, because these yeah, these major transactions can shape markets for, for better or worse. And if, if, if the diversity of supplier base um, isn't isn't part of the factor, then you can end up with quite, quite kind of challenging monopoly situations, which uh, you know very difficult to to, to regulate. Hmm. Um, Mark Fields online, and he, he says, why was no attempt ever made after we bailed out RBS and Lloyd's banks to calculate a turnaround or restructuring premium, rather than simply aim to get our money back, taking no account of inflation? let alone the opportunity cost of the bailout yeah i mean as i'm i mean we've i mean we've looked at those sale processes and and we've pointed out ourselves that it was just uh, you know a kind of net cash in net cash out question and 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 the borrowing cost the opportunity cost wasn't wasn't necessarily built in i mean obviously that leaving that out makes it easier for government to justify that the outcome has been a success um and and I'm, that's a slightly cynical kind of answer but obviously we when we look at these things we will try to understand the you know the, the cash flow basis that put in put into place the the borrowing cost and the opportunity costs and that i mean that's one of the reasons to highlight those discount rates is that you know that you know even not even including quite modest government return rates can, can it's obviously you know an essential part of the evaluation when you when you decide to start a new project it, it, it also needs to feature in decision to sell assets but it can create some anomalous kind of situations because if, if government has the lowest cost of capital then actually it should own everything which is obviously completely counterintuitive and and, and not not, not going to help you with that kind of market economy side either so it's it's then then comes back to the the risk adjustments that you put in into these equations which was a huge amount of judgment needed um government's ability to you know accurately or reliably measure and estimate risk and and actually then understand what it's got right and wrong i think is Stuff, another area of uh, perhaps another seminar, <laughs> um, but yeah. And, and here, Purser has an intriguing question. 
Has the sale of the student loan book to the private sector affected the credit credit standing of the students? Yeah, well, I think there were times at which, and I haven't followed that up in detail, but people's ability to to get mortgages alongside their their debt, um, you know, there are factors about individual affordability, um, you know, that that, that will play out because uh, you know any lender is going to take account of people's individual financial circumstances. Um, I think the sale itself, the transfer of these loans from from a government balance sheet to to a financial institution plans. Uh, balance sheet it hasn't affected the borrowers in any way at all um, you know and actually our, our analysis kind of looked at it and a policy at that time was intended to be rolled out on quite a lot in a quite a wide basis but actually there were there've always been some doubts as to the the value for money logic on on basically selling for cash a future tax receipt which doesn't have any underlying impact on 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 the repayment profile Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does smell a lot like the Publicani in old Rome, the old tax farmers out there. Yeah, it yeah. is a bit scary. Um, uh, when, when you're looking at a situation like this, um, there's a whole class of corporate finance that gets arcane quite quickly. So, for example, here uh, on FS Club, we've had various proposals for uh, reinsurance vehicles, pandemic rees, Zien's uh, been putting forward to the government for some time the idea of a cyber uh, catastrophe reinsurance facility. Um, we've also been working with some of the universities on a university uh, fees guarantee scheme for students to help. Basically, uh, Australia has a similar scheme like that. Uh, are are yeah. these esoteric? I, I don't think they're esoteric, but some people might. But are they also included in, in your thinking in this booklet or is that for a, a, another supplement or something? Yeah, I mean, I think we obviously we've produced a report which is modular. So if our work takes us into other fields, um, we can add to it. Um, the issue on on financial guarantees is definitely something that we picked up, you know, several years ago, and we've seen a lot more use of guarantees through the pandemic. Um, but you know, government likes those guarantees because they can, you know, generate a premium income. And in many circumstances, if scenario, you know, if the scenarios work out to, to their advantage, not suffer cash outflow. But it's, it comes back to that piece about having central capability to understand the risk profile and pricing issues as to whether government's opening, entering these sort of opportunities with its eyes open or, or bearing undue risk that, that obviously ultimately will come through our tax taxes. Um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, we, we've, we've recognized that the use of these kind of insurance schemes and um, factored them into that section of the, of the report. Okay. Um, a lot of the um, background, I mean, a report like this is to some degree uh, most useful in the hands of somebody who kind of knows what they're doing, but isn't really um, au fait with the full environment within government of some of the case studies that you've, you've shown or fully aware of maybe some of the terminology and conventions. Um, what is the general state, in your opinion, of you know, education of people who are, who are at this interface? I mean, this, this part of what, what I do is obviously speak to the government's professional kind of team. So, so there's, you know, there are 
specialist functions in, in commercial corporate finance, finance. I noticed yesterday at the government finance function leadership um, conference, it's an afternoon event. So I think I think general awareness of this stuff is very strong. And um, I, I think where the gaps are often is in, in a political decision making, uh, policy making, doesn't necessarily bring in that expertise soon enough to, to do the appraisals and, and make those sound decisions. Um, so I think it's about it's about applying that right capability early. I mean, this is one one of the reasons why we put the capability in that kind of core core set of principles that you know need to put, apply the right skill sets. Uh, you know, these are and can be quite complex um, activities, and that, that they do require professional expertise. Mm. Uh, Hugh Purser again, I think he may have half rolled over the answer in my question, but I think he's got a point and I'd just like to, uh, Hugh's direct question was, does the civil service have adequate trained staff uh, in this whole area to do the job? Um, so I'll start there and you can answer that. And I've got maybe a supplement on that. Yeah, I mean, I would say people with the right skills exist. Are they always in the right place at the right time? Quite often not. Are they resource constrained? Definitely. Is there more activity going on than perhaps people have planned or foreseen? Certainly. Um, but I don't, I don't think you should stereotype civil services, you know, you know, generalists who can't get their minds around complex issues. I think, I think generally speaking, when we talk to officials, there's a huge amount of expertise and, um, Obviously, we, we're setting a high bar when we come and do our evaluations, um, and we're quick to point out where we haven't seen good good standards or good skills being applied. Um, but there's all there's always always room for a lot of improvement, as as we know. Um, good. Well, actually, I love it when somebody asks my own supplementals for me. So, well done. Those are those are exactly the logic train I was on. And if I may, then uh, we're running to time, but a closing question for you. Uh, who, you know, what individual perhaps, or what, you know, role, where would you uh, most like to get this booklet uh, into the hands of one person? Who would it be? In terms of audience, I mean, the, the, the accounting officer role, the chief executive of departments are the people who are on the hook. You know, they're accountable to parliament for the outcomes of their departments. Um, so we, we know, we, we, we hope that there's, a, there's enough here. There's a section right at the beginning, which just has a page of key questions for each of those three areas, which enables somebody just to get enough of awareness that there's a lot more to this. Um, Dipping into each of those individual 14 sections, I, I'm not necessarily expecting that that accounting officer would be doing that, but but they should be armed here to know that they need the right people in place. Um, right. That was um, you know, very much about the principles and concepts, the organizations and functions and the transactions, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really useful. Uh, <laughs> I, I know a lot of people will find me, uh, you know, a, t a tiny bit of a, a detail person for loving this, but I think this whole booklet series is is really uh, plowing it, uh, up, and I hope at some point maybe you can share some stories if other countries are paying attention and sort of uh, bringing out their own equivalents or things like that. But yeah, so I mean, it definitely gets attention with our equivalents in in other government audit offices around the world. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that, that's the one party I, I must get a, a ticket to, the uh, <laughs> the international <laughs> government audit. That, that, 
<laughs> that was Brazil. Brazil two weeks ago. You missed it, unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not on my expense account, but on the taxpayers. No, 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 no. <laughs> Matthew, it's right. always like to have you here. You know, the the, the real the real uh, charming face of the civil service, but also the thoughtful head behind it. And we really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, I will uh, give you the traditional uh, FS Club applause, which is off of our Thank new you. technology device. Um, a reminder that to thank all of our sponsors, if I may, uh, for all that, and thank you for participating. Uh, it is one of those heavier webinars, but uh, I find it exciting. And uh, we do have uh, some interesting stuff coming up, uh, not least uh, tomorrow, a focus on Tallinn, Estonia, some amazing things going on there in financial services. And you can check out uh, the rest on the website. But we hope to have Matthew back or one of his team back next year. Uh, to talk about uh, another booklet that's coming out but we'll save we'll save that for later thanks again matthew thanks very much everybody bye